As of May 19, 2018, Meghan Markle, an American woman, will officially be a member of the British royal family due to her marriage to Prince Harry. But when was the last time a woman born in Britain was married to a President of the United States? Find out in this special edition of Footnoting History. Hey everyone, Christine here with Elizabeth to uphold our tradition of doing a special edition episode for big events in the lives of the British royal family. Unfortunately, we weren't able to do one this time for the birth of Prince William and Duchess Catherine's third child, and also we're trying to consider a really witty way to say the heir, the spare, and the third child. But we had a good reason. We were planning this episode, and we are excited to bring it to you. As soon as Prince Harry and Meghan Markle announced their engagement, I bombarded Elizabeth with texts about how we needed to brainstorm what historical spin we would put on this situation. It seemed to us that the entire world saw Meghan Markle, American, and made the immediate and, you know, obvious decision to talk about Wallace Simpson, the American that King Edward VIII abdicated in order to marry. But this is footnoting history. So we weren't going to do what everyone else did. Did you know that in the entire history of the United States, there have only been two first ladies who were not American-born? Sure, you might argue that some, like the first first lady, Martha Washington, wife of George Washington, were born before the United States existed. But she was still born within the colonies that became the United States. No, no. Outside of the current first lady, the only other one born outside of the United States was Louisa Catherine Johnson Adams, the wife of sixth president of the United States, John Quincy Adams. The future Mrs. Adams was born in England, therefore making her marriage to the very American John Quincy Adams, himself part of what I suppose you could call a political dynasty, given that his dad was also president, the perfect topic to celebrate cross-Atlantic relations today as we wish Prince Harry and Meghan Markle the very best on their wedding weekend. And there we have our perfect segue into the start of this episode. The fact that Louisa Catherine Johnson, eventually Louisa Adams by marriage, was born in London, England on February 12th, 1775. Which means she was born right around the official breakout of the American Revolution and the Declaration of Independence and the separating of the 13 North American colonies from Great Britain. Now, Louisa's parents are interesting because there is a lot of mystery around them, or at least around her mother and their marriage. Her father, Joshua, was a merchant born in Maryland, while her mother, Catherine, was British. Historians have speculated about whether or not Louisa's parents were married when she was born. There seems to be proof of a marriage in the 1780s, when Louisa was about 10 years old and already had many siblings but it is impossible to say with 100% certainty if this was some sort of second ceremony or if Joshua and Catherine simply hadn't married until they had been together for over a decade. This is sadly one of those mysteries that may never be conclusively solved. And because that is the case, I am, of course, incredibly fascinated with it. Who doesn't love a good mystery, especially a right? scandalous one? I know, it's crazy. Well, Louisa's childhood, as you can probably tell from that background, was an interesting one. Despite her British mother, her American-born father was staunchly pro-colonists when the American Revolution broke out. That was a dangerous thing to be in England, so the family upped and moved to France. There, Louisa was educated by Roman Catholic nuns and developed a fluency in French. 
After a few years, the family moved back to England, where Louisa tried to integrate back into the society of her infancy. What happened instead, though, was that she felt like she never quite belonged. She had not grown up in England with its Anglican religion and different manners and forms of dress, and she found adapting hard, though she had no choice but to do so. Once the revolution ended and the United States was more established, her father gained the honor of being the American consul in London. As a result, the Johnson home became a gathering place for Americans in the city. Louisa's mother was instrumental in hosting welcoming events, and Louisa regularly took part with her sisters, providing entertainment like singing. It was here that she learned the art of entertaining, and also where she met one Mr. John Quincy Adams. Ooh, the plot thickens. Mm-hmm. For you see, in 1795, when John Quincy Adams met Louisa Catherine Johnson, he was 28 and she was 20. He, too, had a life that involved travel and learning, but of a different kind. John Quincy was born July 11, 1767, to John and Abigail Adams in Braintree, Massachusetts. His father was instrumental in the formation of the United States, dedicating his life to public service, and centuries later becoming the subject of one of my favorite songs and favorite musicals, 1776. With Everybody loves it. Sit down, John. Yes, everyone. Oh, John Adams. Also, Mr. Feeney. Forever. Absolutely. And if you don't understand these things, I believe Boy Meets World is streaming on something right now. So anyhow, pretty much from birth, John Quincy was taught that he was always to be industrious and dedicated to the ideals and laws of the country, because through commitment and hard work, he would become distinguished. As a child, he accompanied his father on diplomatic missions to Europe and even assisted him during the negotiation of the Treaty of Paris that ended the American Revolution. Later, he graduated from Harvard and, you know, whatevs, became a lawyer. As one does. But he actually didn't enjoy it very much, and he was eventually appointed the United States Minister to The Hague. The position that brought him to London on a diplomatic mission, which then landed him at the Johnson household with some other American expats. John Quincy and Louisa did not experience love at first sight, though, but significant interest did develop. John Quincy spent more and more time around the Johnsons the longer he was in London awaiting his orders to return to The Hague. And here's where I declare my love for Louisa's mother. Because by April of 1796, Louisa's mother had enough of what was going on, and she summoned John Quincy for a meeting. Everyone needs a mother like Louisa. I know. John Quincy would note the summons from Mrs. Johnson in his journal, and I just have to say that I love John Quincy's journals. I love Me Louisa. Too. I love the letters. I love everything. Christine basically dove headfirst into this and would just send me tidbits throughout the research period of all the things. And I love all the things. There was also originally a full page and a half of our script for this episode of me talking about how much I love doing that. And then I cut it because nobody needs to hear me go on and on. <laughs> but we do. And Christine also needs to um, transcribe some letters. So we're going to be writing to some depositories anyway. So John Quincy noted the summons for Mrs. Johnson, Louise's mom, in his journal stating, quote, came to a full explanation of my views and intentions with Madame upon the subject which was interesting to her. She declared herself satisfied, end quote. Ooh, translation, he intended to marry Louisa, and that made Louisa's mother happy. After all, who wouldn't want their daughter married to a young man with such lineage? Not only did he show promise himself, 
but at the moment, his father was vice president of the United States. But this engagement didn't mean that things would get underway immediately, and you can kind of tell that John Quincy is that type of person based on his journal entry. Yes. John Quincy had definite ideas about how best to do things the right way. And his right way meant that he was not marrying anyone until after he had established himself in a good place with an income that would make it easy to support a spouse. This meant he intended to return to The Hague without leaving even an inkling as to when he planned to marry her. Ugh, burn. Louisa and her family were up in arms over this. I can't imagine why. It would have been easy for John Quincy to just never marry her now. She was left in an unappealing social limbo. She was not properly attached with a fixed wedding date to plan for, nor was she set completely free. She had no choice but to wait for whenever he decided it was time to marry, and that was frustrating. This frustration shows up often in the correspondence between the two. But Louisa didn't start off writing so much. In fact, at the start, she hated it. Her early letters to her fiancé were stilted, and they lacked a real voice to them. You know, this was due in large part to her having her letters edited by the family governess. And that is just so interesting, as a 20-year-old woman having her letters edited by the family governess. Right? I mean, luckily, she eventually abandoned that practice, and that's when her real voice starts to come out. The couple's struggles are incredibly evident in their letters, and indicative of the sort of clashes that they would have throughout their marriage as well misunderstandings, easily hurt feelings, and, you know, just conflicts of perspective abounded. When Louisa attempted affection by calling John Quincy my Adams in a letter, he replied by telling her that he didn't like the endearment because it sounded too much like a novel. Oh, he just continues to be that sweet, sweet gem. I love him. Ugh, such a romantic. Meanwhile, John Quincy had his parents not so subtly whispering in his ear via letters from the United States. And again, if you know the movie 1776, you know how awesome John Adams and Abigail Adams also were at writing letters. So many letters. John Quincy came by his letter-writing talent very naturally. Mm-hmm. They warned him that Louisa was probably not going to be the ideal choice of a wife for his life. She had never been to the United States and was raised, they feared, in a world of courts and opulence that would be a detriment to John Quincy's reputation and his wallet. That's right, they were afraid she was a gold digger who would spend all of his money. Growing up around monarchies, nobility, and European sensibilities made Louisa very different from the ideal Republican-American girl they wanted their son to marry. And yet he did not break it off. No, no he did not. But... He did begin to caution Louisa, telling her that she needed to give up any delusions of grandeur about being his wife because it would not be glamorous. And wow, the way he sells himself throughout this whole thing. I love it. It's great because Louisa didn't really like that either. Right. She protested that titles and money could not sway her, and she was pretty insulted that he thought that they could, which caused him to have to ask her for peace between them. Their biggest conflict, however, was when Louisa's father was planning to move the family to the United States. But John Quincy had still not offered a date for the wedding. So Louisa and her family were even more uneasy than before, because if she moved with her family to the United States, while John Quincy was still indefinitely in Europe, who knew when they would see each other again? It could have been years, or it could have just never happened. Letters were sent to John Quincy suggesting that they visit with him before crossing the Atlantic. But, of course, 
John Quincy saw it rightly, most likely, as a plot to force him into marrying Louisa before he was ready. Um, Louisa never admitted that that was the case. I know that she didn't, but her parents, her mom, come on. I'm just saying. Mama Johnson was not going to let this get away. All right. No. Things were tense and somewhat downright angry between them. And we again know that because letters. But each was also keen to keep the courtship going. So they often declared their affection for one another and expressed hope that the disagreements could be put in their past. And it appears they did, for the couple did eventually marry after John Quincy learned that he was going to have a position in Lisbon, one that would allow him to have enough money and feel secure enough to take on a spouse. Excellent! The wedding took place in England on July 26th, 1797. It was a time when John Quincy's bachelor stock also had risen because he was no longer the son of a vice president. He was now the son of the President of the United States, because his father had been inaugurated that March. And for a few moments, everything seems smooth. Yeah, just a few, though. Mm. Because life is never easy. No. Luisa's father was not a great man when it came to handling his finances, and years of issues finally came to a head a few months after the marriage. One day, he and his family came to Luisa and John Quincy's to bid farewell because they were leaving the next morning for the United States, fleeing virtual bankruptcy. Awesome. John Quincy called the event a, quote, distressing scene, end quote, in his journal. <laughs> Even more distressing to Louisa than that her family left was that her father never paid her dowry. It made her feel like she was a weight on her husband, someone who didn't hold up their end of the marriage bargain. For the rest of her life, she would reflect on this as a blight caused by her family that could never be made right. And if Louisa and John Quincy had nothing else in common, they were both excellent at judging themselves harshly. Yes, both of them were very much prone to feelings of sadness. But both were also very good at rising to the occasion when a crisis came about and fighting through adversity. Although Louisa was prone to fits of fainting or physical illness at times often corresponding with emotional distress or depression, when pushed came to shove, you wanted her at your side because she was also incredibly capable. Her talents were just different than John Quincy's. He was more of an academic, and he lacked the social graces regularly required for advancement and people-pleasing. Really? Based on those journal entries? Didn't see that one at all. Who could tell? But, you know, guess what? Louisa thrived in a social setting. They complemented each other that way, even if it sometimes caused personal discord. So around the time of their wedding, John Quincy learned that he was actually not going to Lisbon. He was going to Berlin. And later that fall, that is where he and Louisa went. While abroad, Louisa suffered a miscarriage, the first of several, actually, that she would have over the course of her life. These naturally did not help her mind or already general fragile health. Despite this, she actually made a positive impression on the Prussian court because, as Christine said, in a crisis and in social situations, she excelled. And at that court, she gave birth to their first son, a son they patriotically... I love this. I love this. They named him George Washington Adams. Yes, they did. I mean, could you prove your Americanism any more than naming your child George Washington Adams when the country is still new? No. So after George Washington Adams was born... They promptly left Europe for the United States, the country that Louisa had now been representing internationally for several years, but never actually seen. They arrived in the United States, for her for the first time, in the fall of 1801. 
It was over two decades now from this time that they arrived in the United States, so in 1801, to when John Quincy became president. And they cannot be described as calm nor perfect, relaxing decades. Not in the slightest. First, Louisa had to learn how to live in the United States. Almost immediately, she felt like an outcast. Growing up the way she did, she was not used to the aspects of life that were considered requirements for American wives, like running your old household in an extremely hands-on fashion. She also didn't love her mother-in-law, and the feeling was mutual. Eventually, the two would get along better, but their start was rocky, which I guess is unsurprising since, you know, Abigail had written saying, maybe you shouldn't marry her. At first, though, the only member of John Quincy's family that Louisa felt actually liked her was John Adams, the father, who by now had just ended his one term as president of the United States. One term that he had hoped would be two terms, but he suffered a defeat that was severely crushing to his entire family. But as was the Adams way, they trucked onward. The next two decades on John Quincy moved multiple times, often between Massachusetts and Washington, D.C., where John Quincy did a stint as a U.S. senator from Massachusetts. In this position, he established himself as an independent voter, someone not guaranteed to tow the Federalist Party line, which was the party somewhat of the North and definitely of his family. And not everyone liked him for it. Their family was also expanding at this time. Louisa gave birth to a second son, given the family name of John, and he was followed by a third son, Charles. Then, a few years after that, in 1809, President James Madison appointed John Quincy as a minister to Russia. Much to Louisa's dismay, her husband insisted on leaving the elder sons in the United States. Though she fought him on this, John Quincy refused to allow them to come, so the only child that they brought with them to Russia was Charles, the youngest. The family lived in Russia for several years, during which they endured one of their hardest trials regarding their children. In 1811, Louisa gave birth to her first and only daughter, named Louisa Catherine, but a year later, the child died after a brief illness. Both parents were absolutely devastated, and even John Quincy's stern facade could not hide his mourning for his daughter. But still, he had to continue his job, and he always sought solace in work. In 1814, he ended up in Ghent, helping iron out a treaty to end the War of 1812, and then he got an appointment in London, the same city where he and Louisa had married. This is where I get to talk about the Bonapartes. Because we can't have an episode where we don't talk Bonaparte. Go, Christine! No, sorry. Before going to London, John Quincy wrote to Louisa back in St. Petersburg and said, Hey, why don't you meet me in Paris? As one does. I mean, would you say no? Probably No, not. I'm there. I'm there, John right. Quincy. Let's right. go. So Louisa set out on a cross-Europe trip that lasted over a month and was so intense that she later wrote about it in a piece called Narrative of a Journey, with the hope of inspiring other women to realize their hidden endurance and strength. Her trip coincided with something near and dear to my heart. Napoleon Bonaparte returned to France in 1815 after his first exile. That's right. Louisa and John Quincy were in Paris during the famed 100 days before Waterloo. There's some sort of weird six degrees of something happening here, but keep I going. I can bring everything back to the Bonapartes. John Quincy would even note in his diary that during a walk, he saw a crowd gathering below the windows of the emperor's palace, where glimpses of him could be caught as he strolled back and forth with one of his officers. The man lived my dream. My jealousy is huge. This began a much-needed happy period, we are happy to say, for 
for Louisa and John Quincy. So thank you, Napoleon. That's right. We're going to thank you for that. When they arrived in London, they were reunited with their elder children, who came to meet them after years apart. As you can imagine, this reunion was pure joy, especially for Louisa, who had never wanted to leave them. This joy could only last so long, though, and John Quincy's service to the United States government beckoned again. Always. This time, in 1817, it brought them back stateside when John Quincy accepted an appointment from President Monroe to serve as his Secretary of State. This would be his springboard into the U.S. presidency. But John Quincy, as we know, was not the most social of men, and he really abhorred what was then called electioneering, but what we today call campaigning. He liked to say that his track record and accomplishments should be more important than his personality. Louisa, however, could and did pick up the social slack for him. Funny aside, though, they didn't start out that way. Almost immediately after they arrived in Washington, they entered into a social conflict. Members of Congress expected Louisa to pay the first call to their wives, while Louisa expected to be the one called upon. It was a big deal because the person initiating the first call was typically viewed as the lower person in status. Many egos were bruised during this superiority struggle. It was so bad that a meeting was even held to talk about this unacceptable nature of the Adams's visiting practices. John Quincy argued that he did not want to show favor to any person over another due to their rank, as that was not the Republican-American way. Hierarchies were a giant no. Exactly. And eventually, as I mentioned, Louisa did enter the social scene. She answered received calls with diligence and established herself as one of Washington's stars. It took years, but it paid off because after the election of 1824, her husband became president of the United States. None of the candidates had the majority of electoral votes required to become president in this election, though. John Quincy Adams actually came in second in the ranking behind Andrew Jackson. To solve this, you know, majority failure, the election went to the House of Representatives where they elected John Quincy. He was inaugurated in March of 1825 which gives me the chance to note my favorite John Quincy Adams piece of trivia. He was the first president of the United States to attend his inauguration wearing trousers instead of knee breeches. Ah, a man with just a fashion sense. He's just fashion forward, my friend. I really do love that fact. It's so bizarre and random, and it's great. I'm keeping it forever. I know. So there's your bit of info to drop the next time you're at a party. I tweet it every year, just so we all know. Aw, that's true. Life in the aftermath of the inauguration, though, was a letdown for Louisa. She found the White House gloomy and depressing, and she hated the fierce, often vicious, personal politics all around her. You see, because, I mean, it sounds simple enough. There was no majority. It got kicked back to the House. They chose John Quincy. And as president, John Quincy appointed Henry Clay as his secretary of state. Well... A lot of people thought that it wasn't quite as innocent as all that. This caused a firestorm of accusations from Andrew Jackson and his supporters. They claimed that Clay, who was the Speaker of the House at the time when the House of Representatives elected John Quincy, had partaken in a corrupt bargain that resulted in John Quincy becoming president over Jackson. John Quincy's presidency was colored by this conflict with Congress. One of the most popular aspects of his tenure was that he fostered widespread distribution of public works, like the building of the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal. Nevertheless, by the time the election of 1828 came around, 
John Quincy was not shocked when he lost to Andrew Jackson. He was, however, more than a little peeved about the political situation in Washington, which he felt was largely skewed in the favor of Southerners. After all, he noticed that of the six presidents the U.S. had had so far, all but two, he and his father, had been from Virginia, and again also that he and his father were the only ones who had not been elected to two terms. So, as much as others were ex upset by the corrupt bargain, he was upset at the conspiracy of power, which made him even more grumpy than usual. I like that term, conspiracy of power. It sits well with me. Despite being sad for her husband, Louisa, however, was thrilled to go into retirement. Leaving the muck of involvement in Washington politics behind was the stuff of dreams for her, or so she hoped. But family tragedy hit once again when they lost their eldest son, George, in 1829. All his life, George was not like his father, and he often received John Quincy's reminders to live up to the family legacy. Louisa sympathized with her eldest, who shared her love of literature and her romantic tendencies. George studied law, as was expected of him, and went into politics for a brief time. But he also developed an addiction to cigars and alcohol, and was known for being volatile. When his brother Charles reported that George had become withdrawn and was not doing well, Louisa and John Quincy devised a means to get him to leave Massachusetts and join them in Washington to aid him with their move back north. Although he agreed during his travel south by steamship, George went overboard in an apparent suicide. He was 28 years old. When John Quincy broke the news to Louisa, she was inconsolable, causing him to note that her condition was, quote, not to be described and that there was, quote, no medicine for this wound. What would draw the family out into the public again was the fact that soon John Quincy was elected back to Washington, but this time as a member of the House of Representatives from Massachusetts. So he's been a senator, president, and now House of Representatives. And Secretary of State, don't forget that too. Ah, oh, this man. He did everything. He became the first former U.S. president to be a member of Congress. And since service was what he knew best, he naturally took to the role. Somebody else did not take to the role, though, because, no, a return to Washington was not what Louisa had in mind in 1830. She had no desire to return to it or to re-enter into the frustrating society, but the choice here was not hers. So Louisa followed him back to the place she hoped to never see again, stating, To pretend that I make this sacrifice willingly would be ridiculous and false. I love that they don't hide their feelings. No, that's what I love too. No, Tell us how you good. really feel. Yeah, they're super awesome on that. Okay. It's great. And this return to public life didn't protect them from per further personal tragedies. Another blow came in 1834 when their second son, John, endured a series of illnesses brought on by his alcoholism. Although John Quincy and Louisa tried to help him, it was not to be enough. John died at age 31, leaving behind a wife, Mary who had actually been attached to George before marrying John instead, and children. Louisa and John Quincy would ultimately only be survived by one of their children, Charles, the youngest. That didn't escape Louisa's notice, and she looked back at that lengthy period in Russia without the two eldest boys as one of the worst decisions she was forced to live with in her life. Although Christine and I were discussing the fact that John Adams also comes from a family, or John... 
Quincy well, Adams both of them. come from a family where alcoholism was a cause of death for various siblings. So as much as Louisa was, as we've mentioned, incredibly harsh on herself, it could be that there were other factors at play there. So now Louisa's sitting there blaming herself and her husband too, because they're the ones that left the children before they went to Russia. And now here she was sitting in Washington while her husband did something else that she didn't want him to do. So you can imagine how she was feeling. But for John Quincy, his time in Congress would be in many ways more fantastic than his time as president. It's kind of great. He may have spent four years in the White House, but he spent, and I'm sure Louisa hated every second, 17 years serving in the House of Representatives on behalf of the state of Massachusetts. During this time, he launched a crusade against his arch nemesis, the Southern domination of the government. Remember, conspiracy of power? John Quincy believed that one of the primary reasons the South was able to dominate American politics was due to the Three-Fifths Compromise. This concept dictated that when considering the population of a state to assign it to a number of representatives for the House, each slave in the state counted as three-fifths of a white person. What this did was inflate the number of representatives that slave states had in Congress compared to non-slave states. So John Quincy therefore felt that they were using the slaves in order to get more representatives in the House of Representatives, even though the slaves did not themselves have any political power. This made John Quincy lose sleep at night. Something else that made John Quincy lose sleep at night was the congressional gag rule. Oh, he hated the gag rule. And as we hear at Footnoting History, we'll talk about any and everything. I mean, he was kind of like that as well. Oh, absolutely. At the same time that John Quincy was trying to diminish what he viewed to be the unfair, unequal balance of power in favor of the southern states, a gag rule came into play. What it did was protect the interests of the slave owners by insisting that petitions pertaining to slavery would be immediately tabled. So basically, it would be ignored and force the keeping of the status quo, no matter how many people wanted to discuss slavery and question whether or not it should continue. Yes. To deny the right of the petitions of the people to be heard by Congress went against everything John Quincy believed. And he led a furious fight against this for years. I mean, he was there for 17. He had a while to do it. He would have kept going if he could. Oh, man, yeah. Although John Quincy disliked slavery, he was actually mostly here operating to protect the rights of the people to be heard. His biggest issue was the what he felt was disproportional representation and spreading of power. Still, because of his actions and his speaking out against the gag rule, he became known as the anti-slavery leader of the House and famously took on the Amistad case, which, by the way, is an excellent movie. So if you ever want to have an idea of what the Atlantic slave trade was like, I definitely point you in that direction. But so the Amistad case, appearing before the Supreme Court to defend the rights of a group of Africans who had been abducted and put into slavery. And not only that, he won. He was a beast. I mean, I mean that in a good way. <laughs> I know that man. Louisa was proud of her husband, as you would be even as her own relationship with slavery was complicated. She voiced that she was against it, and she wrote that she believed that the fundamental principles of Christianity were so blatantly against a system like slavery that it wasn't necessary for Jesus to have preached specifically about it. She and John Quincy never owned slaves outright, but like anyone else living in Washington, D.C. at the time, they were exposed to slavery and benefited from the labors of slaves on a regular basis. 
plus several of Luisa's relatives were slave owners. She worried greatly about the safety of her family the more her husband became associated with the anti-slavery movement, and this trumped her ideological anti-slavery beliefs. When John Quincy began to receive death threats, she grew increasingly even more upset. She admired his passion and his refusal to back down, but she didn't want him to continue to do this at the cost of his life, her life, or anybody in their family. Ultimately, though, what did John Quincy in was age, and luckily none of the death threats were realized. He continued voting against anything that might expand the power of the slaveholders in the South until in February of 1848, he collapsed on the floor of the house, and after lapsing into a coma, he passed away in the speaker's room. A devastated Louisa was too bereft to attend his funeral and would only outlive her husband by four years. Following his death, she was at a complete loss, for despite the ups and downs of her marriage, she had spent the vast majority of her life with John Quincy and she mourned him deeply. Her health took a turn about a year after John Quincy died when she suffered a stroke. After that, she was frail and easily caught illnesses like the flu, which often lingered, and eventually sent her into an even more compromised state, to the point where, by early 1852, she spent the majority of her life in bed. It was clear that her strength would not return, and she passed away in Washington, D.C. on May 15th. On the day of her funeral... Congress adjourned as a mark of respect. This was the first time the federal government performed such an honor on behalf of a woman. And it was the same woman her husband's political enemies had attacked for being un-American. The couple are interned together at United First Parish Church in Quincy, Massachusetts, with John Quincy's parents, John and Abigail Adams. You can visit them there if you're ever in the area, and it is an incredibly easy way to travel by tea and train from Boston, so I strongly endorse it. That is now on my list of things that I want to do. I have done it, and I did it my senior year of college, the last week of college. Uh, so now I have to do it. Yes, we'll do it I together like again. To. I'll go back. It'll be great. Mm, we'll send a picture on the Twitter. We should. Thus ends our tale of the one and only British-born First Lady and her marriage to a member of one of the United States' earliest political dynasties. It was not an easy life, and they were not a match made in rom-com heaven, as you can tell. But they were each other's companions for over half a century. All right, I admit that I grew to love them as a couple for their determination and dedication, even if it wasn't all roses and sunshine all the time. Maybe what I loved was that they were just so raw with each other, like you said before, about their writing. I don't know. But something about them, I just like them as a couple. Well, I think it's because thanks to their writing, and thank goodness Louisa found her voice, they are not two-dimensional. They are very real people, and we can see a lot of ourselves in them and a lot of debates and internal debates we have about career goals and movement and family and obligation. And the fact that they felt comfortable enough to speak these to each other really, to me, shows how true of a marriage they had. Agreed. So... Harry and Megan, as you start your life together, Christine and I hope that you have more ups than downs. Absolutely. But that like John Quincy and Louisa, you are always able to speak your truth to each other. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. 
You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.